Let's turn now together for our scripture reading to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. Once more, we'll read uh, the first nine verses of this passage. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you, masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, our text this morning certainly addresses a situation when it's, which in its explicit details in our text is quite foreign to our experience. Uh, when this letter was first read to the gathered church there in Ephesus, there in the congregation of God's people, you had masters and their slaves uh, sitting together among the people of God, among this people who are united together in one body, as one family, as uh, living stones of the same building sharing the same citizenship, not ultimately of the Roman Empire, but a citizenship which is in heaven. Slaves and masters together in a congregation that is marked by a unity that is really closer than any other human relationship, even the, the family relationships that are so important in, in this world are but temporary compared to the eternal uh, union of Christ and all his people together. I suppose the closest that we might come to even in imagining this situation is uh, from former years in the United States uh, during the time in which uh, there were Africans that had been enslaved and labored on plantations and in other settings for uh, their white masters and no doubt went to church together. That's also a part of the uh, historical reality of the circumstances of those days among many Christians. And there are, were certainly features of that type of slavery that were common to that exercise in the Roman Empire. There are also uh, unique characteristics of uh, slavery in Paul's day that were not true in the southern U.S. For one thing... Uh, I suppose that what uh, what some of those uh, situations had in common were the reasons for which people had become slaves, certainly involving injustice in many instances. There are also slaves that were the result of uh, conquest and warfare or uh, those who had been slaves for generations because their parents and grandparents had been slaves or because of the economic realities of of that culture at the time. It's estimated that 20 to 35 percent of the population of uh, the Roman Empire were were slaves. 
and uh, certainly there were there were also other differences in that day. For one thing, uh, slavery was widely accepted as just the norm of uh, the world and many of its cultures at that time. And uh, in the Roman Empire, one of the features that really were uh, quite different than those of slavery in other times and places was that many of the slaves themselves uh, served and lived in different economic and, and social uh, situations. They had differences among their their standing within society, even on economic and social um, terms. Some some of them actually held rather important positions with considerable uh, education and and skills in in civil service. But I suppose with all those differences and similarities, the the troubling question that we might be faced with is why does this appear to be treated as acceptable in the church? Why doesn't Paul simply command these masters to free their servants? Or perhaps exhort the servants to refuse to slay a serve in such a, a degrading situation as involuntary servitude towards other people? Well, perhaps the, the most broad and general response to that kind of question might uh, be a reminder that uh, the gospel in its uh, proclamation then as well as today when it is truly and faithfully proclaimed uh, does not come with a social justice agenda as a matter of first importance. It's a proclamation of God's saving work uh, of sinners of all varieties. It's a proclamation of uh, reconciliation with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a proclamation of a heavenly kingdom. It's not concerned, first of all, with a great variety of political and economic, cultural, social uh, situations in which that message is first proclaimed. It's about peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it produces love for neighbor, among those who are called effectively by this gospel and become Christians, called to live as sojourners, uh, seeking a heavenly kingdom. And when these things uh, take root in the lives of individuals, yes, it spreads. It has an influence. It spreads like leaven, like yeast in society. Not by force, not by some drastic, radical, or violent social upheaval. Christ doesn't change people by coercion. Christ doesn't change people by revolution, but by transformation. And it's a transformation that begins in the heart. And only then does it, does it spread outward and achieve, yes, in a certain limited measure, some social justice in this world which is characterized by an injustice that will never be perfectly remedied until the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. But that effect is the result of the transformation of lives through Christ. And that's what Paul is proclaiming here in terms of the application of the gospel to both slaves and free people who have come to know the Savior. Christ transforms relationships Christ transforms relationships on the job. I use that expression uh, to, in our own minds, in a sense, broaden the significance of this instruction here. 
beyond that of uh, uh, those in a, a, a master-slave relationship, but rather it addresses all different kinds of uh, relationships in the world and in the workplace, particularly, as we will see. And that transformation begins with what we want to consider as a new way of seeing. From now on, Paul says, we regard no man after the flesh or according to the flesh. In other words, we do not see people. We do not evaluate them simply in natural terms, in terms of natural human relationships or in terms of the kinds of judgments that unbelievers make about each other, the way they evaluate themselves and their other and others in terms of common interest or common differences. No, we see people in the light of Christ. We see them as they truly are, as made in God's image. We, we see them as neighbors whom we are to love. We see them as those who have a never-dying soul. We see them with concern for their spiritual life and their relationship to God. We see them in terms of how our lives might impact them for good. We don't see them simply in natural categories that we have in common with unbelievers. With respect to slaves and and masters as well, how do slaves naturally uh, view themselves in relationship to their masters? Well, most commonly we might say that it is with a slave mentality. But that slave mentality is not something that's restricted to literal slaves. Those with a slave mentality uh, see themselves as having a position under another man who rules them, and thus their position under another human being dominates their outlook. And very often as a result of that outlook, Their slave mentality involves a kind of fearfulness to their lives or a kind of resentment to their lives or a sense of themselves as someone who has no life of their own. You don't have to be a slave to have that mentality. There are people on the job who uh, see themselves in relationship to their daily work and their accountability to their boss as someone who has no life of their own. They're just slaves to their job slaves to their boss, and they have a slave mentality. The master or the boss or the supervisor or owner or however it might be defined is so big that it obscures people's view of God. There's this fascinating verse in 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul addresses a great variety of different relationships, and uh, he addresses uh, slaves there also, and he says, Were you called, that is called to Christ, while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. Yeah, if you can be free, take advantage of it. It's better to be free. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. In other words, those of you who are slaves, you're to view yourself, not with a slave mentality, but you are to view yourself as those who have been freed from the worst kind of bondage and servitude of sin by the Lord. And you're his free man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. Those of you who are uh, not literally slaves, consider yourselves as servants of Christ with that liberating kind of service of love and gratitude for your redemption, which then should shape also your relationships with people. 
How limited is the ownership, if we might even use that term, of any earthly kind of master? It doesn't reach to what is most important, what is most essential to one's true uh, personhood. It doesn't reach to the conscience. It doesn't reach to the soul. It doesn't reach to the mind and how people follow their conscience and how they regard their souls as the Lord's purchased possession and how they think is not to be ruled by other people. That makes people way too big and God too small. In fact, a, a literal earthly master ultimately doesn't even have control over one's body, as if there were no limits to one what one might willingly subject themselves to. And for those slaves who had Christian masters, the transformation goes yet deeper. We hear that in First uh, Timothy chapter 6, where Paul says, Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. In other words, respect your unbelieving masters. But if you have masters that are Christians, don't say to yourself, well, they're believers, and so I don't really got to worry about working hard for them. No, the fact that they're believers should motivate you to serve them all the more willingly because they're beloved and they're brothers. See them in that light. And, of course, that's to be mutual, right? Those believing masters are to see uh, their servants as brothers and sisters in the Lord. They're called, as Philippians says, to esteem others better than themselves. You can imagine how that would transform uh, not only the, the way people relate to one another within these structures, but how it would change those structures themselves. In fact, Paul hints at that in the book of Philemon. You know the book of Philemon? It's just got one chapter, and it's about this uh, interaction between Paul and uh, Philemon, who had a slave who ran away. And uh, Paul met him in prison there in Rome. And Paul writes to his master, because his slave Onesimus had become a Christian. But what does Paul do? Say, oh, you're a Christian and slavery's wrong? You don't have to go back to this guy. No, he sends him back to his master, and then he exhorts uh, Philemon to receive him as one who formerly was unprofitable, but now is profitable to Paul and profitable to him. And uh, he says in verse 16 to receive him. He says, perhaps he departed uh, for you for a while for this purpose that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, to me but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Relationships transformed by Christ. Christian masters are to see their slaves as as equals. No, that doesn't mean that their their economic station is is equal, but uh, ontologically, if you will, as uh, as fellow humans before God, they actually say serve the same master. In verse nine of uh, of our text, Paul exhorts these uh, masters to remember that they also have uh, a master in heaven. And there's no partiality with him. He's not impressed with social differences and distinctions and rank. These masters are to keep that in mind in the way they treat those who are under them. Christian masters or bosses, we might say, or, or owners or managers or 
supervisors or team leaders or however they might be defined in their position, will not see those under them then as beneath them in dignity, as humans. They won't see them simply as tools for their own uh, advancement, but they'll see them with new eyes. And this way of seeing transforms all social relationships. We have a lot of inferior-superior relationships yet in this world in which we live, right? People that serve in the military, they know all about that. They know there's a chain of command. People that serve in different positions in government, they know that. They're accountable to the higher up, next in line, who's accountable to the next in line, right? And there's a whole series of uh, of persons in positions of authority who have those under them. That's typically the case on the job. You have a, a manager or a foreman, maybe a supervisor, maybe an owner, Oh, however it might be defined. We live in these kinds of uh, relationships yet. And often they're the source of conflict, right? Often they're the source of, uh, of strife because positions of authority are abused and people take advantage of their power and they treat those under them as inherently inferior. And they do not respect them and they use them as tools for their own agenda. And that, in turn, causes resentment. On the one hand, you have people trying to get by with whatever they can as those in authority. And on the other hand, you have those who are trying to do as little as possible or show as little compliance as possible. Because the whole relationship is defined in terms of conflict and competition and adversarial relations. That's often the case, sadly. But transformation in Christ changes that. And the question is no longer, what can I get by with in exerting my authority or what can I get by with in resisting it? But the question is, what is the will of the Lord? How do I serve my master? Christ, who made me his own possession so that I belong to him, body and soul, life and in death. How do I serve my Lord while on the job, in the workplace, in these social relationships in which I live? That's a new way of seeing. And, of course, that leads then to a new way of serving. Not with eye service, Paul says. That's kind of a vivid picture, huh? We all know what that means. Don't work uh, in such a way that your labor is controlled uh, or motivated by the eyes of the supervisor upon you, and no further. In other words, don't just work hard when the boss is looking. Here he comes, says your fellow worker. Immediately go back to work, not with eye service. And don't just try to keep up appearances um, by, by measurable standards, even for the sake of pleasing your boss. In other words, don't even work for him from the heart as if your goal were simply to please him. Now, it's good to want to please those who are over us, but not for the reasons that the world uh, follows. Then you're a man-pleaser, right? Not with eye service, as men-pleasers. Your aim is not to please man, but ultimately to please the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. That's what that's what Paul tells slaves in, in Colossians chapter 3, addressing the same issue. You serve the Lord Christ. Three times in our text, this is, this is highlighted. 
as to Christ, verse 5. As bondservants of Christ, verse 6. As to the Lord, and not to men, verse 7. Masters or bosses or governors or superiors of every kind are all according to the flesh. That's the term that Paul uses when he says, bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. In other words, they're not ultimately your masters. They're not the masters of your soul. They're not your uh, the, the masters to whom you owe ultimate subjection in any way. No, in a rather limited way, in terms of this temporal uh, situation in which you find yourself, you have these masters. They're weak. They're limited. Ultimately, your master is the Lord in heaven. All flesh is as grass and the grass. All the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. In other words, don't, don't fear and tremble before them. Right? We ought not to misunderstand what Paul says when he says, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling as you're, as if you're afraid of these men or women. Early on, we heard what it means to be filled with the spirit in verse 21, submitting, submitting to one another in the fear of God. The fear, same word. Or at the end of chapter verse 5, let the wife see that she respects her husband. It's translated there. Let the wife see that, that she fears her husband. That doesn't mean that she's afraid of him, but, but she respects him. And ultimately here, the, the fear and the trembling that Paul speaks about is not a kind of fear and trembling for fear of displeasing people, but it's fear and trembling before God. Paul uses this language, fear and trembling, to describe his ministry among the Corinthians. I was with you in fear and trembling. I was with you in weakness and fear and trembling. Why? Was he afraid of these people? No, but he was mindful of the solemnity of his calling and opportunity to be faithful to the gospel. And he perhaps was aware of the fact that he faced opposition. He was aware of the fact that he felt his own weakness. And with all those considerations, he felt his insufficiency and his inability before God to carry out his office. And with that fear and trembling, he served. In fact, that language is used to describe every Christian's calling. We're to work out our salvation. How? With fear and trembling. We're to take our holy calling seriously before God knowing we need His power to work in us to will and to do for His good pleasure. Otherwise, we can't do it. We need His grace and help. Be mindful of your calling and privilege to serve the Lord Jesus. And be careful to do that faithfully. You're always under His watchful eye. And that's what God calls us to remember. And this applies equally to masters, right? We read it in uh, verse 9, masters also. Um, knowing that your own master also is in heaven. There's no partiality with him. He says, do the, the, do the same things to them, verse 9. You masters, do the same things to them. Well, what does that mean? Masters, obey your servants, according to the flesh? No. Doing the same thing to them means seeing them and living with them as before God. Do the will of God from the heart. In your role as masters, not relying on threats, not relying on harshness, but as as those who themselves 
serve a gracious master and know in their own experience the power and motivating influence of kindness and mercy because they receive it from their master. They want to be like him and to give what is just and fair, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 4. The concern of masters should be to please their master. Someday hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. So masters and servants, according to the flesh, are on equal terms in their relationship to the Lord, their accountability to him, and their service to him in their respective positions. That's a transformed view of of work and service, isn't it? And then finally, it involves a new kind of satisfaction or fulfillment, happiness or blessedness, if you will. What do people want to get? Uh, what do people want in this dog-eat-dog world, as it's sometimes referred to, where competition and rivalry and adversarial relationships often uh, characterize the, the rat race? Huh? Well, no doubt, people in our day want the same kinds of things that people without Christ lived for in ancient Rome. Material gain, pleasure, the approval of others, to avoid hardship and suffering, certainly for those slaves, you can expect that most of them, if not all, they wanted to be free. How miserable it must have been and is yet today. But there's a lot of slavery going on in the world. How miserable it is for a slave who doesn't know Christ and his liberating power and grace, who is under the whims of people and suffer mistreatment and abuse, perhaps with no prospect no realistic hope of of gaining their freedom. And outwardly, that no doubt was the circumstance of many slaves in the Roman Empire. In fact, Peter addresses it. Christians Christians weren't exempt from this kind of situation. In 1 Peter 2, he says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. He acknowledges that sad reality. Whatever possible... Possibilities may be achieved in this life by people, whether they're slaves or whether they're free, whether they're in charge or under the heel of others. Whatever they might obtain is temporary, and ultimately it's it's unsatisfying and ultimately empty. And then contrast that with what is uh, said in verse 8 to us, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether slave or free. Whatever one's circumstances, the good that they do as God's children will be richly rewarded by the Lord. What a high calling Christian slaves uh, may see in their position and in their service because they walk in the steps of the Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ voluntarily acted the part of the slave, right? Read John chapter 13 when he took a towel and girded himself and washed uh, his disciples' feet. Or listen to him say that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many, to shed his blood, to redeem sinners from the thraldom, from the bondage of sin and the judgment of God and lives of futility. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, he was equal with God, yet didn't consider it something to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a slave, 
and was obedient unto death, the death of the cross. You see that uh, even if these slaves there in Ephesus suffer in their position, uh, they may go deeper into fellowship with the suffering Savior. Right? That's what that's what Peter also says. He says, uh, This is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes we were healed. It's almost as if Paul... Uh, loses his place and goes off on a tangent. No, he does that all the time when he begins to extol the, gr- the glory and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But these slaves are taught that in their sufferings, they may have a unique kind of fellowship with a suffering Savior and know the sufficiency of his grace and communion with him that is unique to their circumstances. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And that applied also to those who were servants in Corinth. It also implies, doesn't it, that the work of the Lord is not limited to so-called Christian service. Right? Those in every walk of life are called to the work of the Lord. All work becomes Christian service as Christ transforms relationships on the job, as Christ transforms our whole, our whole view of of work. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Yes, there is one day out of seven that is uh, special in terms of a focus upon rest and worship, but that doesn't mean that the other six days have no relationship to our work and service of the Lord. No, whatever we do, whether it's brain surgery or mopping floors, we are to do uh, for the glory of God, a glory that's manifested in rather day-to-day and ordinary practices. You know, when you reflect upon this passage, we're reminded that nothing really can thwart or stop the advance of the gospel. Not even this entrenched and unjust system that pervaded the Roman Empire where there was so much uh, slavery, so much injustice, so much oppression in a pagan society. But it's in this society that the light of the gospel shines brightly. Not simply by way of proclamation. Oh yes, that's the foundation for all transformation. But it shines brightly through the fruit of the gospel that transforms lives in all walks of life. So that the world could see relationships between slaves and their masters transformed by grace. A different way of relating to one another that testifies to something strange and unusual that has entered this, uh, this home, this situation. Sinclair Ferguson commenting on this passage, he says, How muddle-headed it is to regard work and witness 
as two different realities for the Christian. As if, well, then there's, there's our work and then there's our, our witness. Maybe there's a church program that I can join and, and there I can bear witness. There I can be involved in evangelism as if, as if witness and work were two different distinct kinds of things. Yes, there are many ways in which that witness of the Christian life can be born to an unbelieving world. But we ought not to think that our ordinary day-to-day lives and relationships are insignificant or not to be accounted when it comes to the Christian witness. And perhaps we're thinking more biblically when we think that really this comes first. We're to shine as lights in this dark world as people see our good works and glorify God, our Father in heaven. It's basic. Christ transforms relationships. He does so on the job. That's not an occasional activity. That's an ongoing day-to-day life. It's not even something that we do once in a while. It's really more fundamentally who we are because Christ transforms our lives. And that's not a part-time thing, but it carries into our, our life, our life on the job. God enable us to see that. We might uh, serve in that way and find our joy in serving God in that context also. Amen.